welcome to Crafts and Crime. I'm Amy. I'm Elaine. And as usual, craft and a crime. Today's been a little crazy. I am so tired today. It really, I didn't sleep good last night. It's been a long week. Like, I think this was the week that I had like something every single day. <laughs> yes. And, yeah. Um, my daughter had to go to the dentist. She has to oh, get yeah. some dental work done. Yeah. And then... I was like, I thought you didn't have anything Wednesday. I forgot it was like really early. So you, we expected the rest of the day to be however was going to follow that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, she had a dentist appointment Monday, Wednesday. I had an appointment Monday. Oh, my gosh. We recorded Monday. Yeah, there was a lot. And then, oh, yeah. Week. Friends over. Yeah. We all got to hang out. That was fun. So, yeah, we've been keeping busy and working mm -hmm. on podcast stuff. There's... We fixed, I'm sure by the time this comes out, it's like, we'll already <laughs> announce that we fixed, um, what was it? Uh, Amazon Music and yeah. Audible. Mm -hmm. so that's yeah, because I guess they fixed. stream together. Like, Yeah, so it was like the I think link. Amazon bought Audible. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so it was like the link was messed up. So they fixed that. Yeah. So we are, we got a link tree like Officially everywhere, everywhere. Oh, yeah. Everywhere that I could think of. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so... Yeah, it's yeah. a lot. There's a lot. <clears throat> oh, there is. And so, like, even when I was building our link tree, I was like, oh, my gosh, there's so many. But that's a good thing because, yeah. like, anybody can listen. Right. And, I mean, and not everything that's available to us is available outside of our country. Oh, I know. So that there's, yeah. you know, different kind of restrictions. And so I'm sure some of those play outside of here. Yeah. So we're pretty much everywhere. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we can see stats of, like, where people are listening from on our like account thingy and um and it shows a lot of other countries so i don't know if the <laughs> we have a current cat situation every time we record <laughs> frankie has to be Flink in bean. the mix <laughs> yeah two of my cats i inherited from my aunt and today as we record the actual day today that we're recording it's been one year since she passed away so yeah so we've had them for about a year we got them um not right when she passed but it was like a week or so later yeah. and um yeah so frankie likes to be in the mix he's very needy and he <laughs> likes to hide out in here so he's like hey you guys what are you doing in here yeah but, he's yeah. all that other ones running around i know yeah, so we have, yeah, the cats and kids, and my kids keep screaming, so hopefully that's not going <laughs> to... Well, one of my kids is screaming. It's always one of my kids screaming when we try Friday, to record. Friday, Yeah, it is Friday as we record, um, and I am ready for the weekend. Me too. Yeah, and your husband took, like, extra days off work, mm -hmm. so he's got, like, a four-day weekend. Yeah. It'll feel like a mini vacation, and mm -hmm. he's taking a nap. Yeah, while we record. Yeah. So, <laughs> perfect time. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> so, anyways, Kate, tell me your craft. I'm oh, ready. I'm ready. If this you're is ready. <laughs> okay. So, you know, my last recording was about the history of paper, mm -hmm. riveting. Mm -hmm. And now this is more in depth about paper making itself, along with the invention of one of our UK extinct crafts. Okay. So, um, this is paper part two. This is okay. about making the paper. Yeah, yeah, part two. So, as with a lot of things, you know, baking, any kind of craft type of thing where mm -hmm. you're going to have to use water, clean water matters, even with paper making. Mm -hmm. And so, a lot of what I'm going to talk about is what is the deepest depths of paper making history. So, okay. like it's when... only about the 1400s and up. Mm. So, this is basically the process that was used all throughout that time because this is what we have historical um, writings on. Okay, that makes sense. So, um, the best paper started with clean water. That was important because we're not thinking about the fact that these fibers are going to soak in water. So, mm -hmm. if the water is crap and dirty yeah well that's like when you were talking about just like the hairs in the paper yes, or something exactly. so it does just make from sense from the vat worker so yeah so if you the know water's there's nasty. leaves and yeah. dirt and Pond stuff water mm -hmm. so they would levy out the water in a little river and they would canal it through different filtration systems which were like baskets full of sand and then mm -hmm. another basket full of like linens and then you know they did know charcoal filtration a little bit but not mm -hmm. a lot or you know 
diphtheria and typhoid yeah. wouldn't have been such a thing. <laughs> exactly. And so it started with very clean water. Okay. Another interesting thing was that this paper pulp also absorbed heavy metals in the water. Mm. So unfortunately, the the people who worked in paper milling industries tended to have pretty yucky hands because oh. the processing later on. So this is kind of a thing. They had a lot of uh, heavy metals absorbed through their hands as well, yeah. which is because water was so different. And that water was like the freshest that hasn't been used and filtered the way we do now. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the way that we are working with this is paper made from linens. Mm-hmm. And so I did make a little mention of it. In Little Women, uh, the characters talk about the rag bag. Mm-hmm. Now, what that was was old rags of clothing bits of materials and stuff uh-huh. you would bag them up all together and it was your recycling yeah and you would recycle those materials and you would make about a quarter for a big bag mm-hmm. that was for the entire month man if only it was like that now because like you know when you go through your clothes or like mm-hmm. throw out old towels well, it stuff. is a thing it does happen in the united oh, okay. states we have these different kinds of donation bins that are usually steel in parking lots and you pull down a drawer and you drop clothing into those Mm -hmm. and um that is used for that polyester fabric clothing is taken and recycled melted and recycled and it's reused yeah huh i didn't know that yeah there you go that wasn't even in my notes (laughs) it was just off the top of your head yeah yeah so we do do that but we don't get paid for it yeah i know i'm like pay me a quarter from a bag it's basically just i mean right it's something Mm -hmm. it's basically just less going into a landfill Mm -hmm. um so the way that this starts there are sorters which were all women (laughs) just Mm -hmm. historically and they had to sort these rags clothing pieces Mm -hmm. by hand of course by color and the quality or the fineness of these materials so they went into six categories for the best paper mills Mm -hmm. most paper mills was just like fine medium and coarse but there were six categories super fine 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 seams medium medium seams and coarse and so these are all so like by color so, so seams meaning like it was sewn the, or something the chunk or? of fabric that is left has a seam through it oh so it okay. requires more work because it has been sewn through that bit as well okay and so that's always a thicker material okay that's that makes sense mm-hmm. so they were so precise by eye and touch because messing up the sorting meant the quality was different and it would it could spoil the entire next process so just like if you've ever watched a video of a factory conveyor belt and things are passing by in the sorters Mm -hmm. you just can't believe how fast they are and they're eyeballing and they're picking and flicking out stuff that's that's not right as a usually a laser does this now and it'll like Mm. kick out with air and it like shoots out stuff but a lot of these are still done by eye Mm -hmm. and that's why there's a thousand people on the line because everyone's going to miss something but you just watch them yeah and if a lot's like going through yeah yeah and so these women were so fast they'd look through the bag and they would just grab it and they could immediately sort it super quickly so the next process is called retting r-e-t-t-i-n-g retting And what they did, it's been the same documented. This was the process back in ancient times in in Asia where paper Mm -hmm. started. This basin was what they call a dress stone basin. And that was just chunks of rock taken from a quarry, shaped and made into a basin and mortared Mm -hmm. together. The bottom of this basin was removable or it was angled so it had a little drainage. Okay. And what they are going to do is they're going to compost these rags. Oh, like break them down? Yes. What? Because remember, these are all natural fibers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So this process is going to break down the entire cellular structure. It's going to open up that cellulose, take away any roughness. Mm -hmm. And the way they start it is they layer them up. Not packed tight, just like anyone who knows how to compost. You just mm-hmm. throw it in and you yeah. don't pack it down. And they just wet these rags. Okay. And they are kept wet and tossed every 15 to 20 days. 
Okay. The process takes about five to six weeks of just this. No, five to six weeks, weeks of okay. just this process. And as the water drains out, you know, they it just drips out as it needs to whenever composting fluids come out. And then they toss it 15, 20 days. And they do this again. That five to six weeks isn't a set in stone <laughs> stone because they're in stone basins <laughs> it's not a, a set in stone time because just like composting isn't it's science yeah it's that's breaking like, down raw materials yeah that's like your little compost yeah my little bucket thing. yeah your bucket it's like within this time <laughs> mm-hmm. frame that. yeah that realistically it should be done in five to six weeks mm-hmm. the way that they knew it was ready was when the temperature was so warm in the depth of the pile that the, the if you put your hand into the inside of the pile you could only leave it for like a couple seconds it was that oh, hot ooh. yeah like burn your hand yeah and so that's when they knew that it was mm-hmm. ready fine material took a lot longer because they were tighter weaved better quality so it took longer for that to break down mm-hmm. and Course actually took faster because the coarser bulkier material, bulkier, <laughs> bulkier material, think like jute, think like thick, coarse, oh, yeah. and like burlap, raggedy, it- had a lot more fiber on the outside to oh. rot and break oh, down okay. that material because it wasn't bound as tight. Yeah. And older took the longest because it's dry. The material is mm. so parched, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't using fabric softener. Yeah. <laughs> and so it took the longest. And so all of these things mattered. If mm-hmm. it was old, they had to feel it and know that it was old. That's weird. Yeah. Well, I guess it makes sense. You could always mm-hmm. tell, like, think about an old towel and a That's new true. towel. That's very, very like, true. Like, when we bought new towels recently. Oh, yeah. They're, like, so oh, they're so plush. like a blanket. I know. It's so fluffy. <laughs> um, so when they're done, the fabric is rinsed off. And lye is used to stop their fermentation mm-hmm. and it balances the pH. It brings it way down um, because lye is a type of a salt mm-hmm. along with like lime. But lime comes from a calcium mm-hmm. and that's going to come in too. One of the things that happens during the redding process, and if anybody knows, I don't mean to raw rub a raw nerve here, but when vegetable rot it, how it gets like slimy and thick and Ooh, gross yeah. mm-hmm. like what was under my fridge yeah exactly <laughs> that just happened that's how i was yeah. like i know this is gonna be, hit you oh, um what happens is the cellulose structure bulks up and it is rotting and so mm-hmm. it gets this gelatinous coating that is mm. like if you've ever gotten like flax wet or chia oh the chia that, see that slimy but yeah. it's very insoluble Okay. So there is actually like remnants of that gooey bit that, that they can tell. They're able to test paper that's old and find what it was made out of because of this. That structure oh. doesn't rinse off. And if it's not done properly, if it's not basically rotted, mm-hmm. I don't know why it's not called rotting instead mm-hmm. of redding, um, it will stay and it makes it difficult for the pulp to bind together. Mm -hmm. And if they don't rinse it properly enough and they just try to go whatever, this is going to be fine. Mm -hmm. The paper in time, I'm kind of scooting ahead, is going to shrink dramatically. Oh, okay. Because it's bloated up. And then um, it like dries or whatever. And and it's like, yeah, it's exactly retaining water. Mm -hmm. It's exactly what's happening. Okay. Um, so the next process after the redding is going to be the the beading or stamping process. Okay. Um, this was done by hand. We're kind of going back to gold beading a little yeah. bit if you listen to that episode. So it was done with essentially a mallet mm-hmm. and nails at the oh, end okay. of it. And it was used to agitate a large vat okay. of water. And so they would basically just... They would jam it in and slosh it around and it would never touch the bottom and it was shredding up the fibers. Just imagine like an agitating washing machine. Mm -hmm. And these nails are different lengths and they go through different varying processes and the different lengths make different agitations and rip and stretch the fibers. Nails on the end of the mallet? Mm -hmm. Like so it's like just stabbing it. Almost like exactly micro needling or whatever. Exactly. It's (laughs) like like felting. Oh yeah. It's huge. Yeah. So they're this is what is ripping up those fibers and it's shredding all of them to essentially be Mm. as uniform but it's not going to happen but it gets very very 
close. Um, in around 1650 to 1680, something called the Hollander Beater is invented, which is a water wheel, and the water wheel pumps up and down and moves the shaft to twist and rotate a barrel that has beaters attached to it and so oh. it all became mechanized so, so yeah. just a constant so you don't have stamping to manually mm-hmm. do it okay and so but it didn't it's pretty much just as i explained with gold beating this mechanized version wasn't any faster uh-huh. or more reliable it was actually just as well done by hand mm-hmm. it was just um now they could do more to. yeah mm-hmm. they could do massive vats and mm-hmm. yeah and, you know less manpower so an, an interesting part that came next, possibly, not always, but it did have to happen quite mm-hmm. often, was the original bleaching oh, of to make it fabric white or... before the redding process. Yes. So they had to bleach linens that have been oh. dyed. So this process was... The rags were still sorted by color because obviously this is going to lead into um, a little a little hint on my next craft. Mm-hmm. They were sorted by colors and they're still their fineness in the exact same way. And they were washed and soaked in lye for 36 to 48 hours. And after that, they're taked out and they are blocked <laughs> for okay. people who yeah, know fiber know. crafts. But it, they just stretch, stretch it, it out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they stretched it out. Because that was opening up the entire fiber structure. And they would stretch it out until it was dry in the sun. And the next process is called bucking. And this was, they soaked the rags again for three to four hours. They took them out, stretched them, exposed to the sunlight. And they would Mm -hmm. continue wetting it with water for six hours solid. Mm -hmm. So someone had to be there. It could not dry, but in the sun. So it's continued to be wet for six hours then it's left to dry overnight and it is bucked again which is the process of the lye soak Uh for three to four hours stretching wetting for six hours drying overnight this has happened this is about 10 to 16 times oh wow they do this before another process this process is called souring now remember this is all just a bleach fabric that is so weird yep yeah so the souring process is exactly what it sounds like they use soured rye or bran um, and water or buttermilk they soak the rags for days in this mixture (laughs) then they wash it they bucket again Mm -hmm. which is the lye water soak rinse Mm -hmm. and they just do this until it's wide enough that's crazy and that could take rinse repeat who knows how long yeah it could take six to eight months for just this process just bleaching the dyes out this was just because the white the whiter the paper the the richer you were the richer yeah so (laughs) it took the higher quality Mm. exactly Mm -hmm. so here comes color theory and Mm -hmm. a little hint for my next craft um they they toned it with blue coloring just a tiny oh. bit to off cast any yellowish yeah. brownish okay. color that was left over and then they would if it was a long continuous piece of fabric which it was occasionally uh-huh. it would be starched and then dried to for cloth or if they were the rags which was the same process then it was done to the redding to make bright white paper oh okay so, yes, this took six to eight months. So, if this is the paper making, now we are on to my extinct craft, which is the making of a decal. Now, that word, a mold for paper has, there's always been a mold throughout history of some kind. In Asia, it was, they were probably figuring like sheets of silk already made that was uh-huh. dipped into the vat of pulp mixture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, drained out. And so what it, this process was around this time, which, you know, I'm saying we're back to mm-hmm. about the 1400s still, is exactly what it is now. It's a frame with some kind of screen on top of it. Yeah. And the screens that they used back then were, you know, woven <laughs> like yeah. a fishing net, uh-huh. you know. And it's tightly wrapped over a, a frame, just like a picture frame. Mm-hmm. And they dip it into the vat. And a worker helps them pulley it up and out of the vat. 
Okay. Now it is the shaker's job. He does this by hand. He grabs the shaker tray, which is just the mm-hmm. mold of the frame, and he shimmies it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. He knows the weight by hand. Oh, to He's make it like, like an equal an distribution? equal distributed piece. He smooths the top over and continues and shaking it. and leveling it. What? There's history saying that back – that. It was so sad because these men were so professional. They were so good that just things like age would ruin their entire career. Oh, yeah. Lack of strength. Yeah. The, the feeling. Being mm-hmm. able to, yeah. Injury. Oh, you just couldn't. Yeah. They couldn't do it anymore. And Could you imagine like breaking your hand and you can't It was a respected job. Yeah. yeah. It was a respected job. And so the next process, they lift it up. And after it's been shaken, they move a decal frame on top. And this is what continues to shimmy and presses it down and okay. makes the paper in shape this is what holds it this was the next uh, process okay. uh-huh. so that they didn't have this big floppy loose piece of mm-hmm. paper it mm-hmm. was an invention of literally putting another screen a, a frame on top with huh. no screen huh. that's it yeah and so sometimes like they attached it? a hinge mm-hmm. okay yes and this was actually only invented in the early 1800s oh yeah that oh, was okay. very new so before that the process they would lift up the mold and the way that the paper, it would spread out and they would lift it up as it's on a pulley. Mm-hmm. The next man would unhitch it, uh-huh. <laughs> grab the mold. And if there was a decal later in time, but at uh-huh. this time, there's not. And he would flip it over onto a piece of felt and press it down. Oh. And it was called couching. <laughs> oh, okay. And they would flatten it down and they would continue to do this. Layer by layer by layer, just like back to my gold leaf. Oh, yeah. So they would continue making these layers and then they would just press the paper down and the weight of it would make Uh it perfectly flat and leach out all the water. And actually pretty quickly when they were done with their batch for the day, they would be able to just peel it up and lay it out to dry. Yeah. And the word decal continues throughout book book making if you ever have Mm -hmm. a book that has a raw little ruffly edge edge, that's called a decal edge now it was because when you would lift the piece up you had your whole piece of paper Uh and that there was your paper Uh and it was it took so much time why would you trim it off yeah so when paper became modernized and the paper machines were made after the 1800s very mm-hmm. soon after this man invented this decal frame and it became a modern manufacturing process huh. there was no need it because it was a long complete this screen i'm sorry that was a long pause the screen would run through the vat you know uh-huh. this is all mechanized lifting up the paper it's one solid piece it's immediately pushed into a full uh, a row with rollers and it's just squished down manually. It, there's no raw edge on it anymore. Uh-huh. The edge is as sharp and beautiful as you get. Mm-hmm. And the modernized machinery could cut off the edge. Wow. So what ended up happening, as some book lovers love the decal edge, edge and some don't. Mm-hmm. And it became a status symbol because if you were poor, you only had the old handmade books, uh-huh. which is really crazy. I'm like, I because want a those book. still exist. Yeah. yeah. And... If you had money, you had a machine-made book that had a beautiful, crisp, clean edge. Mm-hmm. That kind of makes sense because yeah. it's like the whiter, the straighter, the prettier, mm-hmm. the it more. It costs more money, which is interesting that it would cost more money to get something made by a machine than it would have been to be oh, made by I hand. Know. That is. But that's why, because they had to pay more money. And that, yeah, you know, anything became status symbols. Oh, back yeah. Um, so that is that is that. Wow. I want to make some paper now. That was really good. We we can absolutely make paper. Yeah, we should. We, we have, have the- a little kit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I did it when I was a kid. And I think I met. I did. I Did I mention this? Maybe it was I on Mommy's so. After Hours. Oh, maybe. But I anyway, I almost blew out my mom's blender with my dad when yes, I was a kid. Yeah. Yep. Making homemade paper. And we used one. like newspaper. And it was gray and hideous. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it. That's why it matters. Yeah. <laughs> That is, yeah, that's interesting. We do have the kits. We should do it. It sounds like fun. We will record it. Yes. I think, honestly, we probably should. even if we don't, we could just do step by step. It's so simple. And it's nice to have a visual. And there's a decal. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There is? Yes. Oh, you looked at the kit. I bought it. I no, I've made it, paper but... before. Oh, <laughs> we, my okay. dad and I made a decal. But it's it really is a thing that is still used. But there's no 
the reason why they consider it an extinct craft is because in the UK there are currently no professional artisans who are continuing it. But mm. there are artisans that do it on their own. That we yeah. have figured it out. It's a frame. Yeah. A picture frame. Picture frame. <laughs> With hinges. It's crazy how it nice took so screen. long to get to that point. Yeah, but. but you can go to Home Depot and buy really fine mesh screen. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it really is just... There's no need. And that's sad because anyone can do it now. Mm-hmm. That really is the reason for the decline is that not anyone can make paper because like I said I made it from newspaper you can but it it was so Mm -hmm. ugly the color was so bad yeah you know it does matter it really does matter interesting well we should totally try to rot down some like pure no thank you I'll do it I will (laughs) do it you will I'm like I don't want it when you were talking about like the flax and whatever I have scarlet flax "Mm -hmm." growing in my wildflower bed that's the red Oh yeah, the little okay. tiny red blossoms. Oh, that's right. right. We talked about that because I was like, "Oh, we should do the." Wait, that wasn't flax. Was it flax? I can't remember. Yeah, we were talking about it. Okay, mm-hmm. flax yeah. was one of the fibers. Yeah, it was. So mm-hmm. basically, what all we would do is just pull out the the grass grassy the, bit. Okay. Chop it up and let it dry, and then mush it oh. a lot. I'll do it. We'll I'm going to do it. Yeah, we should. We'll experiment. Patreon. Fun. Yeah, exactly. Which is exactly what the the future of our Patreon is really mm-hmm. getting to. Yeah. Mommy's after hours and like crafts tutorials. Mm-hmm. Our and Pinterest fails. That. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That whole nailed it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's gonna be us trying to make flax like the paper. And mm-hmm. it's going to fail or something. It's not going to be, it's not going to be bleached. It's not yeah, going to be, exactly. um, lied <laughs> yeah. in the backyard oh. for six months. <laughs> no. Isn't that crazy. That is crazy. Look, what do they do if it rained? Oh, I know. Well, currently we are dealing with a little bit of a rambunctious, uh, crowd outside of oh. <laughs> the door. Yeah. So we apologize if you hear my children. Uh, the two younger ones just don't know how to be quiet. So we apologize, but hey, we're not perfect. <laughs> this so. is not for perfection. No, this It is... never is going to be perfect, and it's not going to be for everyone. Exactly. But we love it, and this exactly. is fun. And yeah. I really, you know, it's funny because you're like, paper, seriously? But how many people do you know know how paper is really made? Yeah. And now hey. I know why paper mills stink so bad. Yeah. It's got to be basically uh-huh. the same thing. They're just rotting yeah. wood pulp. That's why it smells mm-hmm. so bad. Yeah, see, we're just providing you with all the fun facts that you could share with your friends on hey, trivia. I know how to. Do you know how to make paper? I do. I do. Yeah. Whenever. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> that was mommy's after hours. Content. Oh yeah. <laughs> Stopped yourself. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was so, fun. That was. Fun. I actually really looked forward to that. I was like adding notes to. Look right up till we were recording. I yeah, like, oh, I, forgot. I know, and I'm, I'm excited for my case. It kind of, it kind of took off, and I really did a deep dive into this one. I <laughs> watched probably seven hours worth of content <laughs> just oh to get as much to make sure that I wasn't missing anything. And as I'm typing, I was typing it up and I'm just like, wow, this is a lot more than I thought Mm -hmm. it was going to be. So I'm excited for mine. Mm -hmm. It is, of course, devastating. You know, it's it's not like we're laughing at murder or whatever, but or saying we're excited about it. It's just like I know how hard she's been working. Yeah, this is like I'm I'm I don't know, not excited, but I'm just like. I'm ready. I'm ready to tell the story. I've been working hard on it, and it's one that I feel like we should all hear. Okay. So I'm going to talk to you about Deborah Sue Carter. Mm, This isn't familiar to me. Okay. So in Ada, Oklahoma, on Wednesday, December 8th, 1982, around 11 a.m., Donna went to pick up her friend Deborah Sue Carter for lunch. Now, Donna and Deborah met in the ninth grade, and they've been friends ever since then. Deborah was 21 years old and had just moved into her first apartment exactly two months prior on mm. October 8th, 1982. And she lived in a three-bedroom apartment above a garage, and she lived alone. And this was just a couple blocks from her mom's house, mm-hmm. so it's not like she moved really far away. 
She also had her own car and just was like really proud to be so independent Aww, you know, at 21. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so anyways, her friend Donna pulled up to her apartment and went up to the porch and noticed some glass. And inside she could hear there was like a radio playing really loud. Mm-hmm. And she noticed that the door was unlocked. So she goes in and she starts calling for Deborah. No answer. And she noticed that the apartment was, like, disheveled. Like, the couch was ripped up. There was writing on the wall. Mm-hmm. And she just knew something was wrong. And so yeah. she's continuing to call out for Deborah. And so she goes to her bedroom. And she looks inside. And she finds Deborah nude, face down, on the bedroom floor. Mm-hmm. And Donna immediately ran out of the house. Mm-hmm. And she went across the street to a payphone and she actually called Deborah's mom's uh, Peggy, uh-huh. and Donna just told Peggy that something awful happened to Deborah, and that there was like blood on her. And Peggy, of course, freaked out and mm-hmm. ran out to her car to drive to her apartment, but her car would not start. Oh no! Yeah, so she's frantic, and this was probably a blessing that Peggy did not have to see her daughter oh, in this state. Um. So police and detectives arrive at the scene and start processing it. One of the EMTs on the scene was so horrified by what they saw that they ran out of the apartment and vomited. Oh, no. Yeah, it was a horrific scene. Um, Detectives noticed that on the table there was a note written in ketchup that said, don't look for us or else. Mm. And the words for and else were spelled wrong. For was spelled F-O-R-E and else was spelled E-A-L-S-E. So don't oh. look for us or else. They saw that Deborah was completely nude except for white socks on her feet. She was face down on the floor and there was a washcloth that had been stuffed in her mouth. And a cord from an electrical blanket and a belt was found under her body. And her mother later said that those were two things that she had bought her. She bought her the electric blanket and that belt that was found oh, underneath her. No. And... um. It was just, yeah, horrific. So there was a ketchup bottle found next to her, and there was clear evidence that she was sexually assaulted. Mm. There was also a smudge on the bedroom wall that resembled a bloody handprint, and the word die was written on her stomach in red fingernail polish. And on her back, the the name Duke Graham was written. Weird. Yeah. On the wall in the living room was written, Jim Smith next will die. So, yeah, a lot of weird messages, mm-hmm. and it just, it's a bizarre scene. Someone trying to throw people in all kinds Probably, of Probably, yeah. So, detectives dusted for fingerprints and looked for, like, any other evidence that they could find. And there was one hair that was found in the palm of her hand, and there were also f- hairs that were found on the washcloth that was in her mouth. Uh-huh. Um, during the search of the apartment, Deborah's mom was still at home because her car just was not starting at all. Yeah. And, and she only lived a few blocks away. Yeah. Okay. And Girl, so and she's calling and calling and like, yeah. And that's then when her sister and friend came to tell uh, Peggy the news that Deborah was dead, mm-hmm. and Peggy broke down and just started wailing on her sister, like hitting her and just broke down. Her own uh, sister. Yeah. Just because oh, okay. she told her and she was just okay. grief stricken. You yeah. know, just how, why, and nobody had any idea who would do this to Deborah. Like. She Ada is a really small community, and it's actually so small that one of the police officers on the scene actually went to school with Deborah. Oh no! So it's a small town. Mm -hmm. Deborah had like no enemies, and so like detectives didn't even know where to start. So they decided to start with the two names scribbled at the apartment. So Jim Smith was looked at because he was a known local thug. But was ruled out immediately because he was behind bars. <laughs> of course. So could Maybe they have should have done their research. Yeah. So Duke Graham owned a bar in town. And his alibi is that he and his wife were working the bar until 10 p.m. Where then he went home. And his wife and the staff like at the bar corroborate the statement. So he's ruled out as a suspect. One thing to know about Debbie is that she like really liked working and like having her independence and she wanted to work get her own place and then one day get married but at the time of her murder like guys were not a priority in Mm -hmm. her life 
She worked at a local coffee shop during the day, and then at night she worked at a country and western club called Coach Light Club, where she would bartend. It was known as a boot scooting bar. Oh, fun. So it, she was living know. her best single life. Yeah, you know, so yeah, oh, she wow. was working. So she, the night of the murder, she actually was working an extra shift at shift at the bar. Uh-huh. And it was a relatively slow night. And a witness said that they saw Debbie talking to a man named Glenn Gore in the parking lot. Glenn was a little league coach and had gone to school with Debbie. So he knew her. Glenn states that Debbie told him that she didn't feel good, so he walked her to her car. And then a witness says that they saw Debbie give Glenn a slight shove, hmm. but she didn't really seem to be angry or upset. So then she just gets in her car and Glenn goes back inside. And Detective Barrett interviews Glenn and he just keeps saying that he doesn't know who would do this to her and says, like, I've never been to her apartment. And so detectives search him to see if he has any scratches and he doesn't mm-hmm. and he says he left the bar around like 1 15 a.m which was like way after debbie left and someone in the bar named ron west backs this up because ron gave glenn a ride and dropped him off and told detectives that glenn said he was like i'm just gonna go home go to my mom's house yeah so detectives then find out that around 2 30 a.m debbie had called a friend to come pick her up she told the friend that there was someone there that she just didn't feel comfortable being alone with. Oh, no. And the friend told her that, like, she couldn't come pick her up and, just, you know, thought she thought the call was a little oh strange. Oh, my gosh. But yeah, that like, poor can't. friend. Yeah. And that's what she's going to have to live with yeah. her whole life. Not that it's her mm-hmm. fault no. in any way, but oh, my yeah, gosh. Yeah. One of the shows that I watched was, like, she just, yeah, has guilt about it. I um, bet. And minutes later, Debbie does call her back and just says, oh, never mind. Like, don't worry about it. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so obviously, like I said, her friend has, like, horrible guilt over it. So autopsy, at autopsy, it revealed that Debbie really fought for her life. There were defensive wounds that were inflicted while she was alive. So Good she for her, really girl. fought. At least you'd got something. Mm-hmm. Semen was found, so it was clear that there had been sexual activity mm-hmm. or assault. Mm-hmm. And it was discovered that she had been raped with the ketchup bottle that was found next to her body. Oh, no. And the cap from the ketchup bottle was found at autopsy in her rectal canal. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Yeah. So pretty brutal. Very brutal. And, oh, I can't even. Yeah. So. Oh, that means it. Okay. Sorry. <sighs> had to have untwisted. Yeah. Or something. Just, so it was. <laughs> yeah. It was, yeah. Um, so the de- the cause of death was ruled as a strangulation, either from the washcloth that was found in her mouth that was partially down her throat, oh, okay, or the cord or the belt found under her body, mm-hmm. because there were clear like ligature marks indicating that something was used around her neck. Mm-hmm. So it could have been either or or both. So three days after <clears throat> Debbie's murder, she was buried, and her mother Peggy helped bathe her daughter and get her ready for the funeral but she refused to go she just couldn't go and but there was just so many people that showed up so many people that like people had to stand outside so Mm -hmm. she was just clearly loved Mm -hmm. in this small community detectives had no leads and no suspects for debbie's murder but then three months later in march 1983 a fight broke out in the ada county jail an inmate had started talking about the debbie carter case Mm. And another inmate attacked him. So oh. detectives started to think maybe the one guy that got angry was somehow involved. Mm-hmm. Ron Williamson was in county jail and was part of this fight. In 1987 in Tulsa, <clears throat> Oklahoma, he had picked up a woman and raped her. Oh, my God. Yeah. He was also arrested in Oklahoma City but found not guilty for that crime. Uh, Ron Williamson was born and raised in Ada and was a baseball star in high school. And he actually played in the minor leagues. But then multiple injuries and issues with alcohol ended his baseball career. And he had started showing signs of a mental disorder and started behaving bizarrely and would, like, go to stores downtown and stand around and stare at women. So he was just a little odd. Just become the local creeper. Yeah. And he was also known to have issues bothering his ex. And so when detectives yeah, discovered that he had been accused of sex crimes in the past, being charged with raped twice in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They figured like, oh, we're on the right track. Let's look at him. Mm -hmm. 
And when detectives asked Ron Williamson where he was the night of the murder, he tells him he was at home with his mom. Mm -hmm. And she backs this up. And she was known to be one that would, like, not lie and her word could be trusted. And Ron lived a couple... comes to a mom. Yeah. (laughs) But even they said, like, not even for her to lie for something like murder. Mm -hmm. You know, she was just a very trustworthy woman. And Ron lived a couple blocks away from Debbie. Like I said, small community. Everyone kind of lives real close to each other. Mm Mm-hmm. And detectives think that he could have left when his mom, like, fell asleep and gone over to Debbie's apartment. And a co-worker at the coach light said that a few weeks before the murder, Ron Williamson was bugging Debbie. Mm. And Ron was just being very rude and pushy, and he was known to hang out with, like, one of his friends, Dennis Fritz. And Dennis was a single dad, and he was a science teacher from Noble, Oklahoma, which was, like, really nearby. Mm -hmm. And at this point, detectives are thinking that more than one person must have murdered debbie because of the note left on the table that said us like don't come you know looking for us oh yeah yeah mm-hmm. so it's like more than one so they're <laughs> thinking oh it's got to be ron and dennis okay. so fritz was brought in so dennis fritz was brought in for questioning and he was asked about his relationship with ron williamson and you know he was asked if he, they knew debbie carter and really quickly detectives switch gears to like we know you did it tell mm-hmm. us if you and ron killed debbie and dennis fritz denies everything and but unfortunately he has no alibi so there was like not much he could use to like I, it wasn't me you know yeah. and i think this is in the 80s early 80s mm-hmm. so during interrogation fritz and williamson both decide like they'll take a polygraph test mm-hmm. and both tests come back inconclusive and there was a witness that stated both men had come over to her house late at night. Mm-hmm. This is a woman saying that they both came over to her house and she was scared by the way that they acted. She stated she pulled a gun on the men and that is when they left. Like, she's like, get out of here. Oh, yeah. So Good for her. Yeah. So they were the main suspects in this crime because mm-hmm. of how they acted towards women. Yeah. And the fingerprints did not match either one of the men. However, the hairs found at the scene were said to be microscopically consistent with Fritz and Williamson. Hmm. The science in the 80s is like, it makes it really hard to make a clear connection to hairs. So they have to test for similarities. Right. So there were 17 hairs that were gathered at the crime scene and compared to both Williamson and Fritz. Mm -hmm. And the 80s comparison stated that hairs were consistent, microscopically consistent, which is like it hair science has kind of been debunked as a true science because you can't really compare for sure like yeah it's just they look similar under a microscope Mm -hmm. so furthermore at the time semen analysis used blood type and the blood type of the semen that's right gathered matched both like it matched both the guys just the blood type Mm -hmm. and the hair type or whatever you know Mm -hmm. so at the at the time police did need more evidence in order to press charges and arrest both of them and so because of all this it kind of comes grinds to a halt and then in 1985 glenn gore made a completely new statement Hmm. remember he stated that he saw ron at the bar and Mm -hmm. you know so um or no now he claims that he saw ron at the bar hitting on debbie the night of the murder Uh and this is bizarre that he would change his story, but it completely helps out the prosecution. Mm-hmm. And so now they're looking at the bloody palm print and they're like, we need to see if it's Ron or Dennis's palm print. Uh-huh. Because now it's like, oh, Ron had to have been at the bar. It had to be these guys. We have to match their palm print. Yeah. This is all or nothing, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so they're like, we got to see if it matches either one. And it's not a match Poop. to either one. And that is when the prosecutor of the case wants to test the palm print against Debbie. So the original analysis showed it wasn't hers, but they wanted to be completely sure right. that it was. Because this is years later. Mm-hmm. So Debbie's mom is contacted oh my God. in order to get consent to exhume <clears throat> Debbie's body. Oh, gosh. And now at this... T- so after Debbie had died, um, her mom, Peggy, had taken a drinking like pretty heavy. You know, Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine losing a child in that way. So, you know, she would drink a lot and then she would go and like lay over her daughter's grave and talk to her. And yeah, it hit her really hard. Um, She was so distraught over them wanting to exhume her daughter's body, but she agreed, but clearly stated that she wanted to be there when it happened. Like, I have to be there 
you know, I, I don't, I don't know that I, I don't know. I think she's yeah, just Yeah, you never so, know till it happens, mm-hmm. but she also didn't go to the funeral. Exactly. So I think she was Maybe just she like, I need it. this. I need to be there right. for this. Because you never know if she made that decision in their moment of grief. And then after it happened, she regretted it. Yeah. Like, what can uh, you, yeah. you can't undo that. So maybe that's what she needed. Mm-hmm. So she just wanted to be there and told them like, you can, but I want to be there. You need to let me know when it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So on May 1st, 1987, Debbie's body was exhumed. Peggy was not notified. Oh, no. And was not there for it. And when she finally got there, her daughter's body was gone. They had already finished it. And Peggy was so distraught over this that she was actually admitted for psychiatric treatment after her daughter was exhumed. It was that hard on her. And remember, the whole reason for this was so they can, can like, see if it matched hers. Mm-hmm. And it did. It was okay. it was Debbie's this whole time. So it's not the killer's palm okay. print. Which is weird that then, you know, all these years later it changed. Still... But they did. They originally tested it and it showed no match. And then now after exhumation, they're saying it matches. Maybe the quality of the computer. Because yeah. I think they did it by, they like uh, um, magnify it. with, And they basically mm-hmm. use like a jeweler's loop or a microscope, right? And they like pin markers. Yeah, I think maybe the science just maybe got a little had better. Changed just, how, many, how many years was it again? I'm sorry. Um, This was in 1987. So she... It's been eighty three or eighty four. So a few years, yeah, yeah. It was a few years. So science is leaps and bounds all the time. Oh, we every talked year. about that before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So based on hair, blood matches, mm-hmm. alibis, and eyewitness testimonies stating that Ron Williamson was at the bar that night, police are certain that they have their guy mm-hmm. or their guys. Yeah. And seven days after uh, Debbie's body was exhumed, on May 8th, 1987, Ron Williamson was arrested in Ada, and then Dennis Fritz was arrested at his mom's house in Kansas City, Missouri. And a SWAT team had actually shown up to arrest Dennis Fritz, and he was like, he had no idea why they were there until he saw Oklahoma detectives and remembered, like, oh, they had interviewed me about this murder Uh or interrogated me about this murder. So in April 1988, just a year later, the trial for Dennis Fritz started. He maintains his innocence, uh-huh. but a jury finds him guilty of first-degree murder, and he's sentenced to life in prison at the Dick Corner, Dick Connor Correctional Center. And 11 days later, Ron Williamson's <laughs> trial starts, and a witness was called to the stand, and this was Terry Holland. She was a jailhouse snitch oh. who happened to overhear, and she said she overheard a conversation that Ron Williamson had in prison claiming to admitting to killing Debbie. And it was at this moment that Ron, in the courtroom, started shouting and screaming that he was innocent and even tried to flip the table and threw his chair. And oh, that looks innocent. Yeah. Acting and like a big baby. Everyone freaked out. It, 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 like, freaked everyone out. And even his, like, attorney, court-appointed attorney was like, I don't, I can't deal with this judge. Like, I don't want to do, you know, it was just, yeah. it was ridiculous. So, you know, in the, in the end, the jury finds him guilty mm-hmm. and he is sentenced to death. Mm-hmm. And he was then sent to death row at Oklahoma State Penitentiary. So both men maintain their innocence. And after many appeals, Dennis Fritz begins to just like accept his fate. He's like, that's it. I'm, I'm in for life. Yeah. And Ron Williamson was facing a similar battle with his appeals. He had an appeals team, which consisted of investigator Kim Marks and appeals attorneys Mark Barrett and Janet Davis. Mm-hmm. A direct appeal was initially filed and he lost. And then a post-conviction appeal was filed. And that was denied. And literally five days before Ron's scheduled execution, Mm -hmm. a stay was issued. And his case was to go before federal court to review if any constitutional rights had been violated. So during the appeal, they look at his alibi, which was his mother. She stated that he was at home the night of Debbie's murder. Right. And like I said, everyone knew her to be trustworthy. She wouldn't lie about something like that, even to protect her son. Yeah. And... Ron Williamson's mother actually kept a detailed daily journal. And when she checked her journal, she saw that on that day, they had rented some movies and had gone home to watch those movies. See why journals are important, people? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have one that's like a line a day or something mm-hmm. like that. And you just write like a sentence out of like what you did for the day or a sentence mm-hmm. or two. I haven't done it in a while, but. Now it can be time stamped with our cell phones. With I like, know. We take pictures all day long. You're like, look, mm-hmm. I wasn't killing someone. I was taking pictures of my cat. Exactly. <laughs> I know. It's a lot easier now. Yeah. But then in the 80s, it's mm-hmm. like you have mom's journal. Yeah, exactly. And 
she even had a receipt from the night showing the movies that they were like with the timestamp, you know, like when they went. Yeah. Yeah. So she had actually taken this to detectives and gave them the journal and the receipt to help with her son's alibi. Like Mm -hmm. he was home with me. I told you he was like, I'm not going to lie about this. Here's a receipt. Mm -hmm. Both of those items go missing. Oh, Mm-hmm. so yeah ron williamson felt that detectives actually waited to press charges on him until after his mother passed away so that she couldn't be called to testify on the stand to cooperate That's his so alibi because mm-hmm, she was dead by the time he was charged yeah so during this appeal an hair an expert hair witness testified that the one hair found in the washcloth that was in debbie's throat was microscopically consistent with Dennis Fritz and the two hairs on the bed were microscopically consistent with Ron Williamson. Mm-hmm. So now, like I said, the hair evidence wasn't a thing. Mm-hmm. They could only compare to see if they were similar or quote unquote consistent. And hairs are made the exact same way out of our head, except for, you know, there are markers, but mm-hmm. hair is still hair. They're going to yeah. be similar. Yeah. While so, they are different, they still are going to look similar. It yeah. It could just be like a coincidence that they both had kind of the same hair texture. Yeah. And that's why now it's like DNA. You don't mm-hmm. just like, oh, these hairs look similar. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you can say that, but then you have to further analyze them to see if they truly are from the same person. Right. So since it wasn't a thing, it was like they had to be consistent, which that's what they were saying. Mm-hmm. So... They also bring up, you know, during his appeal, the, the alleged confession tapes, which happened in 1987 mm-hmm. after his arrest. And they literally refer to them as the dream tapes. Oh. This is because the closest thing that they got to a confession was Ron telling them about a dream that he had had. What? He told detectives he had a dream that he went to Debbie Carter's apartment and burst in through the door, raped her and killed her. It was just a dream. And in his description, he didn't even describe the scene properly. Like, it wasn't even close. So, but they were like, oh, we got our confession. But one thing that you should know about Ron Williamson was that he had a history of mental illness and he heard voices. Yeah. So within, like, even just within a few years of him being in prison, he had declined rapidly, like Mm -hmm. mentally and physically. You know, prison isn't a place for, like, positive growth in that no. way but when you're already struggling there's no way you're gonna get better yeah it's only no be he had mental issues and it was clear i mean there was a lot of evidence and proof of me- mental issues that like should have been brought up in the initial mm-hmm. trial and it was brought up in the appeals process and ron was bipolar and had paranoia he mm. got social security disability because of his mental issues mm. and this was never brought up at trial or even in, like brought into consideration So, yeah, during the appeal, obviously his attorneys brought this up and they brought up the interrogation tape that was recorded after he had taken a polygraph test. So they continued, you know, it was inconclusive Mm -hmm. and he's continuing to talk. And during that interrogation, Ron never wavers that he had like no involvement in Deborah's murder. Uh And that interrogation tape was over two hours long and it was never given over to the defense. Wow. And this is a Brady violation because there was exculpatory evidence that was not presented at trial. And this is a constitutional violation. Mm. They need to turn over everything that they Mm -hmm. have. So in 1994, five years after his conviction, an investigator and his appeals attorney went to the prison where Ron, you know, was and recorded an interview with him. Mm -hmm. He wanted to tell something. He goes on a rant yelling about how he was an innocent man. And that a man named Ricky Joe Simmons was the one who raped and murdered her. The video is like really intense. He Mm -hmm. is heated and he is, he looks like he's gone through it. He's missing teeth. He's just, he does not look healthy. He's, he's, he's really going through it. So, Mm -hmm. um, so anyways, he's just saying like, I know this guy did it. This Ricky, you know, Joe Simmons is the one who did it. And so they're like, okay, they did the video and they were like, is that all you want to say? And he was just like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, all it, I always say like, I'll show you the video and I never remember <laughs> to, but like, yeah. this was intense. Okay. I couldn't find it. Um, so on their way out, w- the prison psychologist stopped them and they told them, they were like, I think I know what's going on. And they said that, you know, Ron has an alter ego named Ricky Joe Simmons. Oh. And he uses this because he can't bring himself to convince, like, to confess that he committed the murder. Yeah. And this, however, was not the case. And they mm-hmm. had to tell him, like, no, Ricky Joe Simmons is an actual person that lives in Ada. 
That's not a made up person. <laughs> okay. To the psychologist, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. which you would think like maybe she'll look into like, is there a Ricky Joe Simmons that lives in Ada? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, there was. So uh, actually, this is where it gets really interesting. Because on S- September 24th, 1987, Ricky Joe Simmons went to police and confessed to the crime. Oh, what? Yes. And this confession is on video. And he was telling police that, like, you guys have the wrong guy. And at, but at this time, detectives are convinced that they had the right guy or, you know, guys, mm-hmm. Ron and Dennis. And so, you know, the de- detectives are just telling him, like, look, we're really worried about you. Can we, like, make you, you know, we're worried about your mental health. Can we make you an appointment with a counselor? Like, they didn't believe uh-huh. him. They were like, nope, we got our guy. And he, oh my it's gosh, so, that's not how it works. Yeah. And so he's like, no, I, I think that I killed her. And but honestly, like Ricky had his own set of mental health issues. And so Mm -hmm. he was pretty quickly cleared as a suspect. And so Ron was shown that tape when he was in prison. And that's when he lost his mind and started fixating on Ricky Joe Simmons that he committed this, Mm -hmm. you know, murder. And this confession tape was never introduced as evidence by Ron's attorney at trial. Mm -hmm. And Ron's Ron's initial trial. Okay, so he had a court-appointed attorney named Barney Ward, and Barney Ward was blind. And the way he got his work done was he had his secretary or his assistant read all the paperwork to him. (laughs) Okay. And he really didn't work hard on Ron's case. And so this was ineffective counsel, and the appeal court agreed. And so a Mm. new trial was ordered for Ron based on ineffective counsel. So he's got a whole new trial. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And during this time, remember Dennis Fritz is still in prison, yes. you know, serving life. And he was fighting his own appeals. He actually wanted to help Ron. And Dennis had filed his own appeal when he saw a TV show in the early 90s about advancements in DNA helping solve cases. Oh, okay. So this is when DNA started to become a thing. And the innocent, the Innocence Project was using DNA to help, you know, exonerate people get people out of prison Uh that did not commit crimes so dennis was very smart remember he was a teacher so Mm -hmm. he's a very smart person and so he started doing tons of research into this and he contacted the innocence project and they they have to screen him Uh but because he was really meticulous and he had like a really amazing letter and like he included everything that they needed to look into his case like super quick he was like approved and so because of all of this, Ron's attorneys became Dennis's as well. So they were <laughs> like, we'll take you on as well. Okay. And the appeals, you know. And the attorneys agreed to like, we're going to do all the DNA testing for both men. Everyone agreed that the DNA should be run. Even district attorney Bill Peterson, the one who initially okay. was at the initial trial. Mm-hmm. He's here again. He's the district attorney. And he's like, yes, let's go ahead. Let's test. Everyone agrees. Let's test the DNA. And so first, so the plan was first her underwear and her sheets were going to be tested and then the hairs. So a few weeks later, DNA results come back. All of the DNA tested from the crime scene did not match Ron or Dennis. Oh, snap. It was not them. So a hearing was set for April 15th, 1999. Both Ron Williamson and Dennis Fritz were brought into the courtroom in handcuffs. Mary Long... Mary Long was an assistant, not an assistant, I'm sorry, an OSBI forensic biologist, and she was put on the stand to testify that there were no DNA matches found on any of the samples of either man. Mm-hmm. And the judge then said, quote, we use today's science and today's technology to right a wrong. The mm-hmm. motions to dismiss will be granted to both of you. Mr. Williamson and Mr. Fritz, you are free to go. Mm-hmm. And after 12 years in prison, both men were officially exonerated and set free. Now, Dennis, toothless and mentally just, ill. How yeah, sad is that? It really is, and it was really sad watching the. It was like, oh my gosh, heartbreaking because Dennis hadn't seen his daughter Elizabeth in twelve years <laughs> because he just didn't want her coming to mm-hmm. to the prison and being around that and having that be part of her life. So she, he was just like, "Go live a better life. You just don't. You don't need me. I'm in prison." <laughs> So it was really immune. It was like seeing this reunification of the families Mm -hmm. was really like, wow, you know, and 
and Ron Williamson, you know, he goes outside and smokes and he lights up a cigarette. And he's just so happy. He's a little kooky. The cigarette of freedom. Yeah. And um, but it was also sad to see Debbie's mom because, you know, the family is like, I don't know what to Back think. to square one. The evidence was like, it looked like you made it look like they did it. But then now this new science comes in in the mm-hmm. 90s and you're telling me that like. You guys it's messed up. Not them. Then so there's who a murderer is out. It? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So they were like terrified. Like, what does this mean? Her, her true killers out there this horrific murderer mm-hmm. is still in a tiny town possibly exactly so now 16 years after her murder her case is open again oh. but this time they have dna so right they run it through the national dna ba- database and codas finds a hit it's that guy what guy i forgot his name it was Ronnie B. Smith Jr. Who I, I, I totally spaced it. I was coughing so much. No. Um, so this match was to an inmate on work release serving 40 years for burglary, kidnapping, and firing at a police officer. Inmate 153663, Glenn Gore. He was the guy that changed his story. Yeah. His DNA matched all of it. Ugh. And unfortunately... He had just escaped from prison that very morning. What? Yes. He saw that there was like a match. Oh, yeah. So he knew. So he hides out for six days and then he eventually just turns himself in. Mm -hmm. So the new investigation team looked at all the evidence again and they discover mistakes in the original investigation. Gore had claimed that he was at home with his mom the night of the murder. She said she had no idea where he was. Oh. Okay. So no alibi. Mm -hmm. Gore claimed at the time that he had never been in Debbie's apartment. But we obviously know his DNA was everywhere. Mm-hmm. And Glenn had, you know, given two different statements. The day after her murder, he makes a statement saying he saw nothing out of the ordinary at the coach light that night and just went home. Yeah. Then three years after that, he changes it to say, oh, Ron was at the bar and he he was harassing Debbie. <laughs> so clearly to push the direction in Ron's, you know, yeah. Ron's direction. So. Um, the original statement was never in the files because it was filed incorrectly. So the prosecution just never knew. Yeah. And Ron was nowhere near the bar that night. He really was at home mm-hmm. watching movies with his mom. <laughs> yeah. So 20 years later, they're trying to piece together what happened. So this is what they, you know, pieced together that clearly this is what must have happened. It's mm-hmm. on December 8th. Debbie had worked the bar. And when she left, Gore followed her to her car. She shoved him away and then drove home. Gore then went back into the bar, got a ride home from a friend, but instead went to Debbie's apartment and she let him in. Not so out of the ordinary because, remember, she knew him. Mm -hmm. However, Glenn made advancements towards her and this made her uncomfortable enough to call her friend to come get her. Then changed her mind, called her friend back, said, never mind. Then a fight happened in the room and Debbie started trying to fight him off. Mm -hmm. And then she was raped at some point and strangled to death. And then Glenn stages the scene with all the writings and breaks the window and leaves. Mm-hmm. So that's like they knew that's probably most yeah. likely what had happened. They knew they had their guy. Uh-huh. So in April 2001, charges were drawn up and the trial started in 2003. And Glenn claims he had cons- a consensual relationship with her. And the jury doesn't <laughs> buy this at all. And they yeah. find him guilty and he's sentenced to death. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he appeals. And, and then in 2006, his sentence is changed to life in prison without the chance of parole. So it's just mm-hmm. he's now serving life. So, yeah. So all of that just to come to finally after 20 years, the wow. bright guys in prison. So yeah. after so after Dennis Fritz, because, you know, now it's like these two men have their lives back. Mm-hmm. So after Dennis Fritz, you know, was exonerated, he became a teacher again. And oh, he traveled yay. the country lecturing about the criminal justice system oh, and the bet. death penalty and he also wrote a book called journey towards justice oh, love and it. good job yeah so he really was like i'm gonna do good i want to help other people that are in after same. losing so much for so mm-hmm. long so in march 2016 well i said not so but in march 2016 dennis fritz got in a car accident when a car pulled out in front of him and he hit it like head on mm-hmm. but he survived but he ended up with a traumatic brain injury. Oh. So this, unfortunately, like, it, you know, caused dementia. And right. now he lives with his daughter. <laughs> so at least he's, you know, back with his daughter. And then mm-hmm. Ron Williamson had actually, after he was, you know, exonerated and this whole Glenn Gore thing came up, mm-hmm. uh, Ron called Debbie's 
mom. Oh. Um, and just wanted to tell her, like, I had nothing to do with it. And <laughs> she was like, I know. And they actually just chit chat and kept talking and he they would call each other frequently and became kind of like friends because like, they had this common like, trauma he's yeah he's like i don't In hold it way, against you it's, it's not yeah. her it's something that has affected their mm-hmm. both their lives forever <clears throat> so but unfortunately ron took to drinking after he was released you know he did have mental issues and mm-hmm. so he ended up with cirrhosis of the liver and died on december 4th 2004 just five years after he was exonerated so he had five years of freedom and the author john uh grisham wrote a book about their wrongful conviction called Uh the innocent man and i think he helped um dennis with his book because his name's on his book too oh cool um and the show on netflix is also the same name the innocent man Mm -hmm. and um yeah so clearly this was just a case of like finally dna and they got their lives back and so i think that was kind of the inspiration for john grisham to write his book so yeah, that's why I got into a deep dive because I watched one thing and then I was like, oh, I, you know, in my research, I'm finding other things and I find this whole Netflix series. I'm like, I'm going to watch that, uh-huh. but do not watch it <laughs> okay. if you don't want to get spoiled for next week <clears throat> because next week I am going to do another crime. So kind of like a part two. And it is a it is a crime. So sneak peek for next week. Don't watch that show because next week it is another murder that happened in Ada, Oklahoma. Did you even say the show's name? I think I did. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I did. But don't watch it because like it talks about a different case um, that happened in Ada, Oklahoma, right around the same time. Oh, wow. Debbie Sue Carter's um, murder. So. Yeah, three thirty three. So. Make a wish. Uh, oh, wish. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we. Uh, oh, uh, that was a lot. That's so sad. Like if it could, every time we watch these, I'm just like, it's so sad. Watch these. Oh my gosh. Every time we listen to these together, mm-hmm. we're both always like, oh my god, it's so sad. Of course, it's so sad. But it's just like, there's so many facets to the sadness. Mm-hmm. And poor at least, men. At least in this case, it I think really paved a way for change. And yeah, for sure. Um, I'm, I'm sure the way like evidence is presented mm-hmm. and how stricter policies for that, even though they were already in there, they just weren't mm-hmm. enforced enough, apparently. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because the Innocence Project really does have a hard job of screening people. And they're like, mm-hmm. it's really hard to see who's like bullshitting you and who's, you know, really innocent. And I can't even imagine because someone could be like, you know, really making it look like they're innocent. And then you go down and you do the DNA and it's like, you idiot, you did it. Like Mm -hmm. there, you know, so, but yeah, so the innocence project was, you know, on that, um, it's like a mini series or docuseries or whatever, but, um, yeah, they're doing some good work, but I know they're backlogged and it's hard to get your DNA compared against a crime you were committed, you know, Mm -hmm. or convicted of. It's just, that you probably didn't even commit so yeah but thankfully now it's like i mean i know i know my rights and um i'm like i have my uh, master's in criminal justice and my special specialization for my master's was um, forensic science and so i kind of had to when i was watching this i'm just like man it brings me back to when i was working working (laughs) on my master's and so i think that's why i got really really into it because Mm -hmm. it's like all of the criminal justice process and and stuff so but yeah yeah, so that was a lot was it yep it was a lot and you did a good job thank you and it's not even that long of an episode i thought it was going to be a lot longer i think this is our second longest now (laughs) probably but we hope you like the long ones so next week i can't guarantee it'll be short <laughs> i'm like i think i'm mine yeah. is still a continuation but oh, yeah. i'm kind of yeah we'll see yeah so <laughs> with that stay crafty and not cry me bye, bye.